It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm walking in a little, almost totally forgotten valley near Abergavenny in the Brecon Beacons. And uh, not many people come here because it's a dead end, really. And occasionally the local landowner bars the entrance, but it is a public footpath. And it's a fantastic autumn day. It must be about eight o'clock in the morning. You might be able to hear red wings going overhead. Silp, silp. And the tree's golden. It's late November, so everything is really close to being leafless. There's lots of hazels and beech and oak along this waterway and some alder. So there's lots of different colours. There's a buzzard calling above me. Quite a tusky meadow leading down to a little stream which you can hear in the background. And in among the anthills and uh, the tussocks, there are loads of fungi. Lots of different species which I don't recognise. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. And we're coming near to the end of our Histories and Mysteries season. Uh, I've come to this valley because I thought it was a great place to introduce our next guest, a great countryman, John Wright, who lives in Dorset. And in this episode, he takes us out into some local woodlands and fields to explore the world of an incredibly mysterious world of fungi, mushrooms, toadstools, moulds and lichens. And really, he wants to show us that even in late autumn and winter, the countryside has many wonders that you can find. He's with our good old friend Kevin Parr, who also lives in Dorset. So this is a bit of podcast magic, these two. Now John has appropriately for this season a new book out called A Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries, published by Profile Books. And so that's what he's doing really, is just telling us all to take a bit of time on walks and really look a bit closer at some of the things you might overlook as I pass great swathes of interesting looking wax-capped fungi. So I wish John was here with me, but lucky enough he's here with Kevin and I hope you enjoy this lovely adventure in the autumn countryside. It's middle, well late autumn almost, we're, we're well into November. It's a very dank grey day. It's mild. Um, it's a lot wetter than was promised. And I'm in Dorset, West Dorset, 
in the company of John Wright, who is, well, known to many as a writer, as a broadcaster, as a furniture maker originally, um, known to an awful lot of people for um, forays and for his work with River Cottage, um, but certainly in recent years, I think a naturalist and writer is probably a good description, would you say, John? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I've been called worse things. Excellent. <laughs> and John's taken me to a spot, even though I live I live locally, about, and I've done for 10 years or so, I'm being taken to a spot I've yet to visit, so I'm quite excited myself as to what we might see. So, um, I shall check in when we get there. Well, the journey's been epic. It's taken us all of five minutes, I'd have thought. <laughs> And, I, and for somewhere I haven't been before, this is this is pretty special, John Gidgey. Yeah, we're at the top of a hill just off the main road, and um, we're looking down through the mist, I must say, at, uh, it's probably my favourite site in the world. Um, I, this, uh, as you learn things and you live in places, you really get to love them, and this is a place, well, really, it's a place I love most. Um, it's uh, uh, Chalk Downland, I love living on the chalk. It always feels like living on a cloud somehow. Cause That's a nice idea. Yeah. Um, and um, this is one of the most remarkable spots I know. And it's not just because I'm particularly fond of it, but it's uh, an unusual chalk uh, grassland. Very special, very ancient chalk grassland. And you have all the things you would find, expect to find, most of the things you would expect to find. Uh, but you get something else. Of course, I'm famous for my, well, reasonably famous for my interest in fungi. Uh, we have fungi here which grow in grassland, which you would normally expect to grow in woodland. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be seeing this closely later. But uh, uh, you get beletes. Um, Do you? Beletus luridus grows here. You get panthercap, uh, Amanita pantherina, mm. uh, several, uh, one or two lactaria species, and, uh, and, and a tricholoma species. These are all genera, groups of fungi, which you would expect to find in woodland because they are mycorrhizal so they have an association with a tree but it doesn't have to be a tree it can be a woody plant and we look at the grassland here I mean you can't see apart from the gorse bushes you can't really see much in the way of uh, shrubby vegetation but in fact there's a lot there and this is the helianthinum helianthinum the rock rose uh, because it's a grazed landscape the helianthinum has been selected is kept short and has been selected for very low height that is mycorrhizal has a mycorrhizal relationship with with these uh, with these species and you can get beliefs you know, four five six inches in diameter living entirely off of these uh, plants which just, you know from the you know, to the average untutored eye just looks like a sort of patch of grassland fantastic oh that, this is i'm intrigued i mean yes and these are, as I said, I, I, I'm a very, 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 very amateur um, fungi expert myself. And, and yeah, I am recognise Boletus luridus. And, and certainly, yeah, I'd, I'd, sit, I'd look for it under probably oak normally. Yeah. But, but so be incredible to find it out here. And certainly this is, even though it's misty and there's a lot of dampness, it's a coom that we're looking down upon that's sort of sweeping round in front of us to the left. It's quite deep. It's quite a sharp drop down. It's yeah. Um, it's a steep. It's a steep place, and you kind of know, um, you know, when you have to walk up and down these uh, these chalk, chalk <laughs> hills. Uh, we actually used to live in a house. You can just see, uh, Kevin, to the uh, to our left. Yeah. Right, you can just about see where it is. Anyway, it's uh, uh, it actually wasn't that house. I think our house uh, fell down. We were there for three and a half, four years, uh, just renting it out. Um, and uh, and we were so poor in those days, we didn't have a car. Um, and if we wanted to buy anything, we had to walk down this hill, which is quite steep, yeah. uh, through the woods, which you can see in the distance, which is sort of yes. uh, uh, carpets one side of the uh, one, of, of one of the coombs, um, across a couple of fields at the top, down the driftway and uh, into the village, two miles altogether. Now that was uh, bad enough, but of course there's two hills to climb. Uh, on the way back, oh. uh, so it was a two-mile over, very serious. Honestly, fully laden. Fully laden. You you were really choosy what you 
what you bought. Yeah, yes. You know, you didn't buy tins of baked beans. No, you know, you no. buy dry baked dried beans and uh, make it yourself. I bet it was a, uh, a great experience. <laughs> and you did mention briefly that you had something to do with this place being assigned as a national nature reserve. Yes, it's an NNR. Uh, and uh, yeah, we we were evicted not because we were bad tenants, but uh, because the farmer who was uh, a great character, he was straight out of the 18th century, out of Tom Jones, uh, trans- transplanted, unchanged into the middle of the 20th century. This is we're talking 30, 40 years ago now. Um, he was secretary of the hunt, and he kept it for um, more, more for his foxes than for his. He had a breeder herd of cattle. Uh, you know, he looked after his cattle very well, but uh, ultimately it was the foxes he cared about. Right. He, would, uh, he was secretary of the hunt, and, and the hunt would often uh, meet up here. Uh, of course, that's that's gone now. But um, uh, we were evicted, and, uh, and the farm is to be sold. And I have come to love this place so much, and realised it's um, how special it was. And really, I just I lost sleep. I had nightmares about it, um, wow. about it going under the plough. And we spoke to a friend of mine down down the road, farm worker Alan, and he said, "Oh, yeah, it'll be good when they come up." He said, "You get the pan busters going up and down those uh, those oh. those hills." Uh, he said, oh, "And they'll, they'll put it over for uh, for for lawn turf." Um, and it sort of broke my heart. I got in touch with. Uh, natural England as they are now and they weren't particularly interested it didn't show up on any map as being a particularly int- a particular interest as a sort of lone cap on the top which sort of arguably uh, affects its value but I came out here with uh, but eventually they, they took an interest and came out and, uh, and they sort of realised what I meant and uh, what well, a kind of long story short and a lot of anxiety I, I did I did a bit of survey work and sent them a species list um you know not it was a particularly good one but they came to love it like I did Fantastic. and I kind of washed my hands of it because I didn't want to know I didn't want to know what was happening the next thing I knew they bought it outright they actually bought it over the off, off of the farmer who bought it from uh, commander air um uh, but it's been saved, and it's 200 acres. They bought some wow. on the other side of the hill as well. Uh, we lost a few of the top fields, which were probably hadn't been uh, ploughed very long before, maybe 30, 20, 30 years before. We lost a lot of field mushrooms that way, but which is a terrible shame. But the really important stuff is here. It's beautiful. Brilliant. What a fantastic story. That's that's lovely. And now we're gonna we'll go and take a closer look. <laughs> It's um. <laughs> always a good start. We've um, we just wandered as, as we parked up. We just wandered slightly to the sort of southeast um, and found some people working, which is great. We're here from Natural England on we behalf are of Natural for Natural England. Yeah, we're contractors, but we are working today for Natural England. And you're obviously you're just clearing bramble, clearing bramble and light scrub. This area has been cleared beforehand a few years ago, so really it's just clearing it again before it starts to develop into denser, thicker scrub and, and woodland. Yeah. Keeping it open. Trying to revert it ideally back to chalk grassland. That would be the ideal. Fantastic. And I think John, when we got here, was worried about where you might be burning in case it was going to be on the turf itself. No, no. These sites are always selected, so they, they cause minimal environmental impact onto the, uh, onto the turf. And you've got a fair bit more to do? There's yeah. loads. I mean, you could spend all winter here doing various things really but we're contracted to do a certain number of, of man days so okay we're here all week um doing more of the same here really but uh, in various other locations within within the site and quite a nice fire which is probably welcome on a well, it, dank it, day it, like yeah, this it's nice to have a fire tricky today with it being so so wet but uh when we move on to do the more woody areas that should be a lot easier yeah absolutely Thank you very much. That's we'll, all right. We'll let you crack no on. Enjoy your walk. Thank Enjoy you. your mushrooms. <laughs> there's almost a bit of brightness. We can see where the sun is. And there's a lovely sweep. We're in a coom that is sweeping round. Well, it, it could be 360 degrees, but it's not that quite that far, I don't think. And this lovely slope we're on, which is um, dotted with wax caps, and which we'll talk about. I won't, I won't get John to talk too much about mushrooms because... You're currently sort of interested in all sorts of matters that you might stumble upon in the countryside, and you're, you've just had a book published 
the Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries, I believe. Is that the that, title? That's the one. Really, it's a reflection of my own experience, and I guess the experience of most people who walk through the countryside is you're always finding stuff where you go what is that you yeah know, you know how did that get there it could be it could be an agricultural relic you know some far, some field system some something that's obviously connected with farming where the the purpose for it um has been forgotten has been lost i mean just just below us here there's a little cutout. there's basically yes. a hole in the ground holes in the ground are particularly tricky uh because you can never really work out uh, what it is i guess it's a chalk pit but uh, okay uh, <laughs> on chalk uh well, they, they just uh, brought some up and maybe um, use it to make lime if you've got lime kilns in a uh, lime kiln just up from the village yeah, so yeah, it could be anything. It could be it could be an agricultural relic. It could be uh, something entirely natural. Um, things like uh, like galls. Um, uh, it could be uh, a, a slime mold. People see slime molds and uh, they think, uh, you know, what is that? It doesn't look like anything. It doesn't, yes. like, it doesn't fit into their conception uh, of what the natural world consists of. It looks like a sort of sticky, slimy, nasty stuff growing on a bit of grassland yeah. or, or across a log. Uh, it could be an unusual plant like um, like dodder, which is uh, parasitic, or or the broom rapes. So these are things that don't have any chlorophyll because they don't need it because they're para- parasitizing. Um, it could be um, it could be a flower which instead of being yellow in the middle is black, and that would be a smart fungus. You know, most people pass these, these things by as unknowns. Maybe they don't notice them at all. I've taken oh gosh, maybe a thousand, maybe twelve hundred wild food forays over the last thirty or so years. And people are often bringing me, okay, it's a mushroom for me. They bring me a mushroom or, or point out a mushroom for me to see. Uh, but it could be something else. They say, what's this? You know, is this something growing on this leaf? What is it? I say, oh, that's a spangle gall, you know, on an oak leaf. Right. Uh, so people do think and they yes. do wonder. This book answer, answers around about 50 of these questions. This is a, I wouldn't like to say it's lifetime's work, but the experience is yeah. a lifetime one where every time I go into the countryside, I see something else. I don't know what it is, and I have to find out because Brilliant. I am. I just get very cross with myself. I don't <laughs> <You> know. Don't... <laughs> Perfect, and we'll walk on and avoid the wax caps, of which there are several varieties that John can name. Oh, I believe I certainly can't. Although I can tell a snowy wax cap when I see one. We've walked back a short distance. There's I think they're crows in the distance, but a few birds beginning to move. Now the the uh, day's lifting a touch. There's a lovely view up to um, a sort of wooded valley that I'm guessing pushes on round this this rise here. Does it? Yes, it sort of disappears behind the hill. We call that Camel Hill. I don't. Know, it's got a hump on it, I suppose. <laughs> Most hills could be called Camel Hill. Yeah, okay, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like a coppice, really. Um, it's a coppice in the flat bit, flatter bits. The, uh, um, the steeper slopes have been taken over by, well, formerly elm, um, now ash and oak. I guess we'd be soon be saying formerly ash as well, yeah. which is a, a great shame. Uh, but uh, you know, the coppice, uh, it was coppice fairly recently, uh, cut back, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a lively coppice and very, very interesting. I must show you that, uh, can you see that? Well, it's a very distinct ring. It's not yes, complete yes. of, uh, well, they're mushrooms. Of course they're mushrooms, yeah, a ring of yeah. mushrooms. Um, and I, I, I could have always known how they uh, occur, but people are always asking me, must have been asked a hundred times, why do they grow in rings? I, sadly, and I hate to ruin it for anybody, but it's nothing to do with fairies. Oh, sorry. That, oh, I'm uh, going home. It, it's kind of obvious when you get to to hear about it. Um, is it's just that the spores land in one space, uh, one particular place. Uh, they fuse, they'll grow, they feed. Uh, of course, if you're in one place, there's only one way to go uh, to feed, and that is outwards. Yeah. As they feed, they all die off in the middle, and you end up with a ring of mycelium. Remember that. Yes. But what we can see over there, they're the fruiting bodies. They're not the fungus themselves. That's just the reproductive organ the fungus itself is underground and it just grows out and it grow out about four you know, four 
10 centimeters, 150 centimeters yeah. a year. Um, that's quite a large one. That's probably about 50 meters across. It's yeah, really quite an enormous <laughs> one. Um, and uh, it's like, uh, you can sort of date it really. It must be, um, God, I can't do it off the top of my head. 100, 200 years, oh, 300 wow. years. Goodness me, they can, they can grow one of the eight most ancient things uh, that grow anywhere. Uh, um, uh, and that's all it is. You probably will have seen uh, a mushroom ring even when there's no mushrooms there. Yes, that, yes, indeed, in yes, the grass, yeah. Because it changes the uh, soil chemistry as they pass over an area. They've digested the organic matter, absorbed it into their substance, uh, and they release inorganic uh, nutrients and that stimulates the growth of grass and you often get um, just behind the mushrooms or where the mushrooms will be you'll get a ring of uh, verdant grassland and vegetation because it's been stimulated to grow so it's very much symbiotic the, the relationship between the the fungi and the grasses do you think i don't know i don't think the grass is all that keen right on, on what happens to it I, yeah it does release nutrients i suppose yeah i suppose you could say it's just a rotting fungus like any other uh, sometimes it isn't uh, because uh, there's one particular one people hate in their gardens um, you get mushroom rings in your garden almost invariably it's going to be the fairy ring champignon um, yes. and that is a very short mushroom it only grows barely you know two two or three centimeters tall and uh if you're a short mushroom determined to spread your spores to the four winds what you don't want to be is thick in a thatch of grass no. you don't be deep down because the spores won't blow anywhere they kill the grass they actually produce cyanide hydrogen cyanide gas and kill the grass wow so you have this sort of brown patch which uh, people really hate on their lawns I th they say well how do i get rid of it i say well, you can't and uh, stop moaning about it and you're lucky because you can eat them as well oh, they're yeah. very tasty absolutely <laughs> so fairy rings which aren't aren't the work of fairies which i i must admit i probably i probably knew deep down but i just didn't want yeah. to admit to myself you were living in hope I, absolutely yeah. i'm always dreaming but we'll walk on are we going to head towards those woods yeah. don't let me tell you about father christmas will you well he's coming soon now yeah. i mean he's yes yes he is okay yeah. okay i was we're stepping down the slope and John's rattling out Latin words that, that might just be nonsense. He might be he might be speaking in tongues, but um, equally he's he's finding some some fantastic looking mushrooms. And then we've come across well, it looks a bit like <laughs> cat sick, but it isn't cat sick. No, no, it's not cat sick. Although sometimes it's called the dog sick fungus. Uh -huh. Well, it's not dog sick and it's not a fungus. It's a slime mold. I really wasn't expecting to see one of these so late in the year. They tend to be, uh, but it's been very mild. They tend to be a little bit earlier. Um, there's three or four patches of these. These are re re sort of fairly average size. They're quite small, about uh, 10 centimeters, maybe 15 centimeters across. Um, they absorb. It looks like someone's dropped some uh, some porridge on the yeah, grass. Yeah, it's actually a porridge, and that's a nicer thought than cat. Yeah, if you get it, if you get it, and when it's very young, it looks like just like scrambled egg. I mean, oh, re wow. and really nice. If you had that on your plate for breakfast in a restaurant, you'd be thrilled. <laughs> hotel or something. Uh, so this is a slime mold, um, and uh, these things actually move around. They crawl around the grass. It's uh, oh really? Yeah, it's uh, it's very very difficult to explain, but it's lots of cells which are all uh, connected. Uh, sort of chemically I suppose uh, really it's a, it's a kind of giant cell with lots of nuclei uh, right. and there's, there's no real uh, it does, doesn't, uh, this is one of those things that really doesn't fit in most people's conception of the, of the natural world uh, these are just starting to change colour which means they, they have fed and they, will, they produce these substantial blobs which will crust over and you'll get a mass of black spores underneath and that will blow away in the wind and they'll grow somewhere else. Amazing. Uh, this one's uh, it, it's quite large. I've seen them here uh, a metre across. Wow. It can be quite enormous. And you consider they're a metre across and they move about. And yeah, they're kind of a bit worrying, but they don't, they, don't, they don't move fast. You can always outrun one, you so can. don't worry. I'm not sure I could. But um, but but it's just an incredible thought. So so if you I mean you set up a sort of stop motion camera, you'd uh, I mean how long would you need to take photographs to capture a movement? Yeah, I think you'd be here for a while. Okay, <laughs> so not something we'll do at sort of before lunchtime. Yeah. And I'm sure you want to know the Latin name. This I, is, do. I think This is Musilago crustacea, crustacea because of the crust it forms okay. in the end. Excellent. Musilago because it's slimy.
fantastic amazing stuff and, and well this is precisely of course the the kind of mystery that you're you're solving yeah We're, there's a whole chapter in the book uh, de- devoted to slime molds uh, i mean this is just one of uh, many that i'm Actually, there aren't all that many compared to a fungi, say. Uh, there's probably only a thousand species of slime mold in the world. Oh, wow. um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, it's a lovely one, uh, it's spectacular. But you get more, much more colorful ones. I've seen purple ones, orange ones are very common, and uh, yellow one, yellow one, the Texan blob, as it was once named after a, a load of them, and sort of uh, started taking over the people's backyards in Texas, presumably, well. uh, presumably after a lot of rain. <laughs> And of course, they, they thought, and I not unreasonably, I, th- mm. uh, I felt that they were sort of an alien invasion. And they do feel alien somehow. Yes, yeah, I can, I can, yeah, I think I can let them have that. We've we've come to the edge of the woods, um, where it's a little less windy, although the the sound of the workmen is still bouncing around. Oh, there's a blackthorn by the look of it, filled with slows. And uh, John's found something more interesting. Yeah, this is something which is ridiculously common. You will have seen it a thousand times, ten thousand times. And it's, I guess it's the commonest of the rust fungi. Rust fungi are those things that people pass by. Uh, generally speaking, they're orange. This isn't one of the orange ones, but uh, it's found on bramble leaves. Of course, bramble oh, leaves right. are here right into the winter. They don't all... Uh, it's any sort of partially deciduous shrub yeah. um, and we can see very distinct um, uh, discoloration and little structures underneath the leaf which is the small producing bodies uh, let's pull that in. Uh, as far as most things concerned this is just a, a bramble leaf which looks a bit well in the words of my daughter's manky yeah. it does it's gone off <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always think that hedgerows and indeed woodlands aren't really very interesting when they're in fresh growth no. it's only when you get towards well into the summer uh, and into the autumn they actually become interesting they're actually diseased um, but you always think of diseases as a bad thing and of course if you're a bramble you'll probably think the same uh, but you know, you know rust fungi are life like everything else and they deserve their their, their chance and then because wow. I can just turn the leaf over it's sort of purpley on top and it's, uh, the fungus is called uh, Phragmidium violaceum and you can see these little uh, black this is one of the series of spore producing bodies that they uh, produce uh, if you find it another time they would be purple um, yeah. so, they're very and they're tiny little black spots that yeah uh, and they'll drop off presumably as and when they well they produce the spores from there that's probably, oh, I the, see, spores. I that's see. probably the spores you can see this is one of the they produce a variety of spores there's a hugely complicated uh, lifestyle hugely complicated sex life as well oh is there yeah, is well, there time to go uh, into that no none at all uh, and it's too complicated and we should pass such things by yeah we should absolutely absolutely Oh, we've climbed up through the wood. It's uh, there's no paths here. It's all all rough tracking, um, but it's it's fairly easy going. It's uh, coppice, which there's some fantastic hazel. Um, we've just seen a spectacular ash tree that was well absolutely coated in honey fungus right up to the honey fungus. There's yeah, honey um, fungus. Yeah, it's going 20 feet up. Yeah, mate. Um, and now we've just found something that I. I recognised, and um, but John will probably tell us more about because he, I think, he called it something different. I uh, I love this particular fungus. In fact, I owe it quite a lot because it was a fungus that got me interested in fungi in the first place because oh, right. it didn't make any sense to me. It's a black spherical, hemispherical lump growing on a bit of dead ash, uh, which is its normal habitat. And um, it doesn't, and it's sort of, it's very light. If you pick one, it's got very little weight to it. Um, and if you break it, it's crumbly and it has concentric rings. It's called cramp balls, King Alfred's cakes. Not, as my daughter once suggested, King Alfred's balls. That's completely <laughs> wrong. Um, and uh, it just cracks off. This is a, a mature specimen. And you can see, Kevin, the, uh, the concentric rings oh, yes. there. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're actually they're growth rings. They're not annual rings. They just 
uh, growth rings. It's not even periodic, they just build up these layers. Eventually produce this um, surface, which one's uh, definitely dead and crumbly now. Uh, and it's one of the so-called pyrenomycetes, um, which is an ascomycete. That's the spore shooters. Uh, this is right. a py pyrenomycete, which means it shoots its spores from little flasks. Pyreno is meant, means flask. Uh, if we looked at that under a good lens, you'd be able to see there's thousands of thousands oh, of little tiny pores on the surface. Uh, those pores are the necks of flasks. And the flask is about, I don't know, about a third of a millimetre, tenth of a millimetre in diameter, very small. And... Um, uh, and arranged on the inside of the flask are uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of ASCII, and each containing eight spores. Uh, one of those ASCII will grow to the neck of the flask, shoot its eight spores, and then withdraw. And then the next one go up, shoot its wow. eight spores, and withdraw. And that will, and that will go work time and time and time again i uh, i captured one of these when it was producing its spores back in the summer and i put it on a piece of white paper on the dining room table i covered it over with a big bowl because we didn't want spores everywhere i knew it was live because you put your just touch it and get a little bit of black on your finger you know that spores are being produced right and came back the next morning and there was a corona of black um, wow. with, around it, you know, about about a foot in diameter, I guess. And this is where the spores have been ejected, and you have they follow a sort of reduced parabolic uh, arc. Um, only does it at night. Oh, does it? Because these are arid adapted species, and uh, they actually it's not very arid here. No. But, uh, no. Um, <clears throat> Most of the species uh, are found in, in, in uh, Central America, in Mexico, in the desert areas, uh, so they are dry adapted. Um, the reason they produce spores at night, which is, I think, rather fascinatingly called nocturnal ejection, and try not Ex to snigger <laughs> at that, uh, and... Uh, and they produce their spores at night because if you produce your spores in the daytime, they will just blow away. They'll, they may come in contact with a bit of wood, which it could reinfect, but it's dry. It won't stick. At night, you get dew, uh, so the spores will stick. It's an extraordinary thing. It doesn't look very much, but my goodness, there's so much happening there. Yeah. And I think it's such a shame people don't know this. <laughs> well, it's a perfect, a perfect example. And I, I know them as King Alfred's Cakes. And I... I had no idea. I mean, I, to be honest, I'd, I'd always just seen them and seen the surface, which looks quite smooth. I didn't I didn't even consider that it was going underneath. But and all I knew is, that I, are they good for lighting fires? Yes, they are very good. If you have one, if you dry one out completely, or indeed if you can even find one underneath a log where it's dry, and uh, you sort of crumble it loosely and get one of those fire striking irons, yes. you get some sparks. And they will actually set light to it. Wow. And if you blow it, you'll get a little glow. Um, when it, it can be a light, but it won't. It not only doesn't it produce much smoke, it doesn't. You can't see a glow. Uh, and I'm probably not the only person who's done that to a whole one. Uh, set fire to it. Thought that's gone out and put it in my pocket uh, because oh, yeah. you set fire to your pocket, which, oh. is, which is very amusing <laughs> for everybody else watching. Why is there smoke coming out of your pocket, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're amazing. They they are, yeah, I'd, I'd be almost more reluctant to try that now that I know quite what's going on inside. It's incredible. And you've also got a, a piece of wood that is quite blackened. I'm not sure what that's from, but um... yeah. In writing this book, I a lot of the stuff I knew, um, but there's some things I really didn't know. Some mysteries that I hadn't solved, and one of them is why does wood go completely black yeah okay things can go sort of dirty and maybe there's some humic acids there that make it uh, brown and uh, black and dirty but there was something about it it looks more like a coat of blackboard paint there's a little bit of wood here about a foot long and right at the base it does look as though it's had a coat of blackboard paint it does, it, it, yes. this, this is not the wood justice coloring in fact it's a layer and it is called a pleurosclerotial plate, a pleurosclerotial plate, which uh, I come to, I come to adore this. So I, I get every so excited every time I see it. I've got people with them, with me, and I, I just spend the, they sort of their eyes glaze over, as they're probably doing now, um, as I get very excited about it. Uh, it's if it's called it is a fungus it is caused yeah. by a fungus the fungus itself is in the wood if you break a bit of the black you can see it the actual it's just rotten but very bright wood inside yeah. and you can actually see it, it is a layer it's about uh, about half a millimeter yes. in, uh, thick maybe a bit a third of a millimeter uh, this is a protective layer that the 
fungus lays down to keep the inside stable with moisture content and also to protect itself against invasion by other fungi. Fungi don't like competition, so of this course. will be a single individual thing. So no um, other spores could penetrate this, this uh, no no they can't in fact they the thing doesn't spurious gradual plates don't really rot down i was in the new forest uh, a couple of weeks ago and i found a fallen ash tree i mean it was ancient fallen ash tree and it was in the serious last stages of rot some these pleurus grotu plates are also inside uh, they can also be um, inside that's called spalting and if you've ever been to one of the you know country fair and there's a wood turner there you'll always have a piece of beach turned into a bowl or a, or yes, a vase yeah. or a lamp where you get these black lines against the uh, and it forms these beautiful patterns these are the edges part of the the edges of pleurosclerotial plates that form little cells or well, quite big cells within the wood they will they will survive the rotting of the tree of, if, unless wow. you get a problem. I found uh, a beech log where the wood had rotted and you were left with these black honeycomb structures of pleurosclerotial plates. Incredible. <laughs> so, I was, uh, well, I was so excited. I'm, I've never seen it go that far before no. and I got so excited to see it. Well, we've stepped out of the coppice, which was lovely for a time. There was just a soft soft rain falling which sounded stunning as it just dripped through the trees and there's a little tiny patch of blue sky and we've stepped out to the east i think of the coppice another lovely grassy slope dotted with dead thistles i think and a view across to the other side where the landscape is presumably a little bit touched by the hand of man yeah but it was it was touched by the hand of man um continuously but it started a very very long time ago and really hasn't probably hasn't changed very much it may have got scrubbed up uh, over the years and then was cut back but generally speaking i i suspect this has been like this since the iron age uh, oh, this wow. is this yeah. is pasture it's in pretty well impossible to do anything else with it apart from pasture so uh, as pasture it would have been used uh, you can see the mark of of the animals that walk across it. These are the terracets, basically little terraces, of course. And you can see these sort of generally vaguely horizontal markings. Yeah. And they're not really trackways, they're just grazing paths. So they just walk around uh, on these little paths that inevitably get made by the uh, continual traffic of uh, sheep and sometimes cattle. And, and they graze from there. These aren't sort of thoroughfares, you get those at the top of the hill and the bottom of the hill, but uh, this is how they graze. They're, they're quite uh, interesting places you get sort of fast growth on the edge of them though not in the middle that yes tends to be a little bit depleted uh, probably through uh, uh, compaction um terraces uh yeah they're about uh, if you look look at them from above uh with a, with a map and measure them they're about a meter across okay they don't look that, they, that you know, wide so this is quite a steep slope and it really is kind of even though we're we're up a little bit from the valley bottom it does tower over us yes it? yeah it does it does you can tell this is good you can tell this is a good bit of grassland just by looking at the fact that it has these terracets it means it's been grazed for a long time yeah uh, there are i think i counted them once there's about a thousand anthills <laughs> covering the whole thing but most particularly on the lower slopes that shows uh, it hasn't been touched for, for centuries yeah uh, and it really it's the color of the grass i like uh because it isn't really grass i mean there is a, there is grass there but it shows it's a really rich herbace- herbaceous mix of uh, of native species which are climatized to here you get the diminutive species um or diminutive varieties of uh, of fairly common species that you find in continually graceland which just gets sele- selected out or selected in it's an amazing absolutely amazing looking looking piece of land and, and it would be so easy to look past it as well and, and not really consider just how how complex it is yes it's it's complex in detail it's a beautiful thing yes it's a beautiful yeah. landscape and that you know i think most people would appreciate it's a beautiful landscape 
a lot of people would be perfectly happy if it was a lovely bright green all over where it had been yeah. ploughed up and it would be possible these days to plough it and they well that's much nicer but it's not it's not you know a ploughed a plow up bit which has been reseeded will have a few you know a handful of species in there this has probably got uh, several thousand species of invertebrates fungi and plants and indeed slime molds uh, of course yes, yes of yes, course there'll be, yes. there'll be lots of <laughs> nematode worms and god goodness knows what else um yeah this is a, this is a thriving landscape um full of interest and I just kind of feel proud that I had a, a, a hand in. I didn't do any hard work, but it was me that started. You know, I, I take full credit for that. Kevin. I think I you really should. Do. I think you um, should. And it's because I got to know it well. I know this place very well. Uh, we lived here for years. I've been coming up here for 40 years. It's a place I know intimately. And, uh, and the, the better you know a place, uh, the closer you look at it, not just as a beautiful landscape, but look at it intimately the more you come to love it the more you come to love it the more prepared you will be to protect it and in this case it doesn't work for everybody in this case it worked and i'm and you know i think people should give that a go i think that's such a perfect sentiment and a lovely lovely notion and i think it's testament to yourself and to yeah that that it's still here and it is but you're absolutely right i think you know i'm guilty myself of of not looking what's on my doorstep and travelling a distance to to find things that are, you know, that are in a forest or a, a landscape so far away. And this is close to my house. I've never been here. I'll certainly be coming back here. Um, thank you so much for sharing it. You're welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Well, that was John Wright talking with our own Kevin Parr deep in the wilds of Dorset. And, well, one takeaway for me is don't put King Alfred's cakes in your pocket. I'm delighted to say that Kevin Parr is joining us in the virtual podcast studio with our usual podcast favourites, Hannah and Jack, who helped me make this podcast. Kev, how lovely to see you. And you all, thank you very much for having me. Again, it's no, really nice to be here. Thank you. I can see Jack and Hannah in the actual real studio. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Kev, brilliant to, to have met John. And um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a true countryman. Did you feel, I mean, you, you sound like you found absolutely loads of fungi out there. Yeah, we did. Which is probably inevitable with John. He's, he's known for his knowledge of fungi. Um, oh, I've, we've bumped into each other a few times because we live quite locally. And I've been finding his his special places secret places over the years and he's sort of come across me sneaking some of his mushrooms but um <laughs> so so when i sort of yeah. knocked on his door and he's like farmer he, maggot um, yeah completely yeah <laughs> chasing me off with a pitchfork but so he recognized you know it's it names to faces and things um but it's interesting that he is uh, he spends his entire walk looking down um and i'm generally looking up um for birds more so, but we're also walking exactly the same pace, which is a good thing, because most people hate walking with me, because I'm just—I don't walk. I just sort of amble and then go and look at something in a bush or put binoculars to my eyes for a long time. And um, but he was just the same pace, you know, looking at, at fungi, and there were lots and lots of mushrooms. Um, it's mainly grassland, but the wax caps, which are stunning-looking things come in all shapes and colours, and they're really shiny to look at. I think actually it was John who described them in a book that he said when he first saw a field of wax caps, it was as though a child had taken a box of toys and then thrown them down the hillside in a fit of, of anger, which is sort <laughs> of how they look. They're just all these different colours and, and, and just don't look real. And they look wet where the, the caps are sort of shiny waxy hence the name but you've got all sorts of colors and snowy ones which look like they're glazed and and he and john of course is just reeling off all of the 
the um, Latin names. Just yeah. bosh, bosh. <laughs> <laughs> are there still plenty of mushrooms out there to see? Yes, there are. And, and there are, you're, they will appear, autumn sort of when most will appear because it's damp and it's dark. But you'll get certain species that will appear all winter. Species, even in grass, and you'll get bluets that can survive till quite late. And in the woods, you'll have um, winter chanterelles, which are quite well named and can survive a few frosts. They can freeze and then and then thaw and, and be okay. So that so you can see fungi all through the year, um, but autumn's the prime time. And if you're later in the year, the coniferous woodlands can be better than deciduous because you've got more cover. So um, you can often see more under conifers just because a, they... Yeah, a reason to go to a conifer... Not that I'm dissing conifer woodlands, no, well, say, yes, exactly. but they're not, not the most biodiverse and they can be quite so dark not. and haunting. Well, you mentioned chanterelles and I've always been a bit of a keen... I'm a keen forager, but I've always stayed well clear of mushrooms. You know your mushrooms enough to find a few to eat. Don't you? Yeah. You know, I've seen your tweets. And you're yes. still here. You're still alive. <laughs> I'm still here. I've been married five times, um, and I always try them out on my wife first. No, not that. Um, I um, no, I I learned. I took an interest, and then um, and then learnt all the ones that I could eat, all the ones that could kill me, any that might vaguely look like one another. There's about seventeen thousand species, I think, in Britain of fungi. 17,000? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I've learned, you know, I know, I, could, I probably know, you know, very confidently about 60 edible um, mushrooms and I'll know the ones that, that can kill me. And and there's certain ones that I probably wouldn't ever bother looking for because they're just a bit too close in appearance. Um, but I, I wouldn't ever, I think, well, the rule of, rule of thumb is never even touch a mushroom unless you know exactly what it is, you know, its name. Because the really the really deadly ones, which are often in the Ammonita family, which are like the Death Cap and um, Destroying Angel and Panther Cap, are some good names. Yeah, um, but of, even there's, there's a hint there that uh... yeah, there is a clue to what to what they might do to you. Um, but even the spores can kill you, and no one really knows how poisonous they are because um, because you can't tell because you can't you can't really test them. Unlike Midsummer Murders. An episode which made me really cross when it was about a destroying angel and someone was poisoned with one, and it was a cook or something. I just remember they ate this like um, spoonful of of stew that someone had chucked a destroying angel in, and within moments they were like ah, clutching their throat, and then you know, and, and fell over and died. And that isn't what happens. The poison takes twenty four hours before it'll even touch you, and then you'll be ill, go through your system, and then it, it sort of gets into your into your vital organs and then slowly destroys them as it goes back through your system and then comes back again so then it finds your organs ready to be completely wiped oh, out goodness that's a very graphic graphic description of... it's pretty horrible and even with hospital treatment you've got little chance really oh, right so yeah it's it's something don't don't even don't take it lightly at all. I mean, it's serious. There's a lot of... And some of the most innocuous-looking mushrooms can kill you. Um, we found, with John, we found a, a log covered in um, funeral bells, which, again, are appropriately <laughs> named. When they named these things, they must have had a few examples of where it had gone <laughs> yes, wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, deadly web cap. I mean, that, again, you, you probably wouldn't touch. Wow. No, okay. so, so there's no real rule of thumb with it either. So we should come with you then, if we if we all come foraging, it would be a good idea. Can we can we do that next year? Can yeah, we definitely. take us foraging and we bring if we bring a frying pan and some butter, definitely. And maybe some garlic. Can you do? Well, you that? mentioned you... chanterelles. I've I've got a spot and and I've almost I've not lost interest in it, but where part of the fun is finding the spots where you might find the really incredible mushrooms, which are the chanterelles and seps. I mean the marquee species and then having found them it's almost a bit boring because i know when and where they're going to appear and i can go and fill a basket but they are so tasty though oh first chanterelles of the season just oh well well you're selling it to me apart from the sort of death bit so you talked about um dawdling when walking yeah you yeah i i totally get that how about you hannah and jack you are you fast-paced or dawdler do you like to dawdle 
or do you get irritated with dawdlers? I think it depends where I am. I get told a lot I walk fast, which I blame on the long legs. So I think it's a default <laughs> and, speed. And your youth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not. Okay, yeah. Um, it's 12. I'm 12, only 12. Uh, but I think, depending on where I am, if I'm somewhere where it's not just a noisy, busy town centre, I've got the speed on. If it's somewhere that is quiet, peaceful, a bit more relaxing, I then just, I kind of slow down and take my time. How about you, Hannah? I, imagine, I think you're, I've walked with you. You're quite a dawdler. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was about to say, I am slow. Um, because, you're 86, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. It's me. Um, I look at the ground all the time. I'm always looking for little tiny bits of pottery or tiny little flowers or tiny little creatures or what's that movement over there? Oh, it's a blackbird again. That sort of business. That for me is the joy of going out at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that, definitely. Find yourself a dawdler and stick with them. Um, John John is obviously trying to turn us all into dawdlers with his book, which is kind of the reason for doing this podcast, which is A Spotter's Guide to Countryside Mysteries, which fits yeah. perfectly within our Histories and Mysteries season. Um, so, And that's full of – it's not just fungi. I think it's full of all sorts of uh, little signs and beautiful elements of nature that – those who yeah. are those fast-paced walkers and talkers miss it all. But Absolutely, and and lots of um, uh, um, you know, man-made parts of the countryside, and I think you know, little um, dew dew ponds and um, strip linchets and things like that. That actually, one thing that was interesting as well was the fact that um, that I mentioned birds. I mentioned red kites because um, I'd seen where we walked. I'd seen the next valley over. I'd seen some kites recently, which is still incredibly unusual down here. And I, I asked John if he'd seen any over, over his home, and he he was pretty nonplussed. You know, he, he didn't really know what <laughs> he never looked to look for. No, and it was interesting because one of the reasons that um, he said he's not that interested in birds or butterflies, he added, was because there's so few of them. He said, you know, there's 57 species of butterfly. I mean, that's boring. There's no there's no challenge. So he likes the challenge of of really not knowing and really going deep into things whereas i'm the opposite i'm happy you know learning the butterfly species and... well when you've got a busy life you haven't got time to go through seventeen thousand, <laughs> seventeen thousand <laughs> mushrooms when we could be uh ticking off 200 birds but um even that i'm i struggle to see new species of birds but i did i've done a bird story in fact i had a dawdle today didn't want to go out really cold but i had to take the dog so i went down to the river which is the usk there was a bird singing and there's not that many birds singing this time of year, late November, but it was really persistent. And I thought I sort of, it was quite low down near the water's edge. So I thought it must be a dipper. And then I saw it and then I recorded it on my phone. So have a little listen to, if you haven't heard a dipper singing, and I apologise for the quality, it was my phone. But um, here's, here's, a little, here's a little dipper. It's not that tuneful, but it's quite distinct. I think it's quite um, well. You're in, you're in such such good habitat in in South Wales, where dippers seem to to bob on every single stream and river. Which is um, we're right on the edge of there. I've seen a lot more this year, actually. But he was singing. I'm assuming it was a he. Uh, he was thigh deep in the water fishing, and then he stopped and just sang for a bit. Um, and whether that's territorial or just he's they sing in autumn but i haven't heard a dipper sing like that before so i don't think i have i did i did know saw something interesting about dippers in that their bones are or the lower bones of the lower body and the legs are solid unlike other birds which are hollow obviously to aid flying you don't want heavy bones but to aid walking around on the bottom of a stream it's quite useful to have solid bones so they're they're unique in that aspect and also their eyes they have um muscles that attach to the lens of the eye 
um, so that when they go underwater, the muscles contort the lens in order that they can see underwater as well as they can see oh, above. That's amazing. Water. I did not know that. Um, I should sort of add, if, if people don't know what dippers are, they are like they're like little. They look like little dumpy blackbird robin type yeah. thing with a white breast and they swim underwater well they walk underwater to catch yeah. aquatic prey so they're sort of really unusual um and you know they're quite hard to spot but they do bob around uh, hence the dipper they sort of stand on a stone up, bob up and down but yeah really worth this time of year looking out for them on in any streams in the in the west of britain and you get a few you did you say you get a few in dorset we're we're right on the edge we're, we've got some on the local stream but we're right on the edge of the range so we do see them but but nothing like further west yeah it's sort of they're more in the uplands and um it's, in fact, it's, it's an interesting thing i wonder sometimes whether they're not so much in the more easterly river systems back perhaps because of um, predators in pike, maybe. I, mean, I, th- I was thinking oh, yeah, pike maybe. probably... It's tasty probably snack either. for... Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's... Whether there's anything to that, I don't know, but they, they're definitely uplands. In... They certainly like foraging in those sort of stony riverbeds that you definitely yeah. get in, in the uplands. The reason I mentioned dippers, and I know that was an extremely long story, but the reason I mentioned it, something happened after. It's something I've wanted to bring up in the plod chat with you guys to see... It's that thing. So when I'd, I'd sort of recorded the dipper and then I saw someone coming along the footpath along the river and a big open field. So I, they, were, they were sort of a quarter of a mile away. And it's one of those things of, you know, I always try and say a big cheery hello. And I did. And they just totally blanked me. Um, so it was a really weird thing. There's just two of us in this vast open space. I don't know whether they had earphones in or something deaf or whatever but uh, normally people do say a big cheery hello but it made me think of that whole etiquette of saying hello to strangers uh, d- does that ever do you ever come across that does that ever make you feel uncomfortable or had any funny experiences i will say hello to people um quite often in fact well, i do generally talk to people but it can be a bit frustrating if they if they don't shut up <laughs> you you might sometimes get a life story but you can also get some fascinating things I've uh, when I've stopped and talked and I like sharing things often adders are a good thing to share I often um people often ask me what I'm looking for in the spring if I'm looking for adders and then I tell them and then there there's often a, a sort of a recoil or a shock of I've never seen an adder and you can say well there's one just there and um <laughs> And then that can make people really open their eyes. That's a really good thing. Gosh, that's a good thing. That is a great thing, yeah. Do you have a dog? I think dogs sometimes, people are wary of, of other people without dogs if they're dog owners. Yeah, I had a dog, had the dog with me. Um, he's quite badly behaved and um, well known locally for jumping up and down on people. So uh, I tend to keep him on a tight lead. <laughs> So uh, it could have been your reputation that preceded yeah, you. True, <laughs> true. Oh God, it's Fergus. Just walk. Yeah, just and you've got headphones yeah. on. How about you, Hannah and Jack? Have you uh, had any? Do you have any sort of tales to tell? I always say hello. The biggest, brightest, cheeriest hello I can muster. But I did have one weird experience where I was I was at home. So like, bearing in mind, I've lived there for like thirty years, and it was a quite a sunny day. And it was during lockdown where a lot of people, like new people around. And this man said, so I said hello to him. He said, hello, enjoy your stay. And I was like, enjoy my stay. (laughs) It was just, it was fine. But also like, I don't feel like he needs to give me permission to enjoy myself at home in my place. It was weird. So the other thing that we had a letter to the magazine about how you say hello and there's this thing about saying, well, you can say hi, hello, or hello there, which is that sort of, I'm putting you in your place. <laughs> by kind of. Uh, and, that's and exactly that's, it. I found myself saying that. And, re- and then I realised that by saying that, you're sort of, it's like ownership of this footpath. And I know, uh, like, I'm, I'm meant to be here. And maybe that's a bad thing. So I've, I've reined it back and I just try and say a nice cheery an innocent hello but the hello there is just comes down (laughs) so maybe you need to say that when you get when you so next time i see him that you're you're not a visitor i i have a i have a theory when i've been on walks and stuff in the past i think there's an equation that's the distance away from a car park the further away from a car park you are the more likely someone is to say hello to you 
I think the closer you are to a car park, most people just don't speak to you and you don't speak to them. And it's a bit of a weird zone. But the further out you get, everyone seems to open up a bit more and will say hello to you. So there's some equation there. The distance away from a car park equals more likely to say hello. <laughs> yeah, that's that, brilliant. I can, yeah, I think there is a question, isn't there? I think it's, it's interesting. It's the distance. If you're approaching someone on a straight path, there's sort of little glances up as you're wondering at what <laughs> point you acknowledge the other person too. It probably matches in with the... Um, with the car park distancing issue. We walked actually with my niece and nephew in the summer that we hadn't seen for a long, long time. And um, my nephew's, I think he's nine now, and, and we're quite quiet and, and um, you know, chatty amongst ourselves. And then we passed some people and um, and he suddenly just stepped sideways and bowed and said, good day to you, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Excellent. That's well, what maybe we should be doing. Be, I, I will do that. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's good. I'm glad that other, you all sort of share some of those sort of the challenges of saying hello. To <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the things. Well, if, if any listeners out there do see us in the countryside, Kevin Dorset, Hannah in Gower, Jack in Bristol and me uh, in the Brecon Beacons. Make sure you bow. Yeah, bowing is good. <laughs> but no, please say hello. <laughs> We'd love, uh, nice big cheer, a nice big cheery hello. If if you don't see us, you can get in touch with us via our, my email address, which is editor at countryfile.com. Please send us thoughts, likes, and all sorts of chat, anything about mushrooms, anything about um, the countryside that you'd like to share with us, and we would love to share it with other listeners through the podcast. I think that's probably it for this episode. Um, we've got one more history and mystery. I'm out actually in Somerset, talking with the historian Amy Jeffs about her new book, Storyland. And then after that, it's Christmas time. So join us for all these lovely episodes. Kev, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And Hannah and Jack, delightful as ever. So from me and the podcast team, thanks for listening and goodbye.